Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, where we explore how to make space for everyone in the yoga community. This podcast is brought to you by the Accessible Yoga Association, a nonprofit organization focused on accessibility and equity in yoga. Hi, I'm your host, Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him, and I serve as the director of Accessible Yoga. And I'm your co-host, Amber Carnes. My pronouns are she and her, and I serve as president of the Accessible Yoga Board of Directors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast. Today, I will be the guest host. My name is Anjali Rao, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And in honor of the AAPI month, um, I will be joined by Sindhu Thomas, uh, who I'm really excited to speak about social justice and anti-racism and all kinds of cool stuff that Sindhu does. Uh, Just an introduction to myself. I am a yoga educator. I'm a board member of Accessible Yoga, um, and I'm deeply interested in teaching and sharing and practicing yoga in service to the challenges of the times we live in, an intersection of yoga and social justice. So today we will be talking about disrupting anti-blackness in communities of color. As a person who is uh, from an Indian immigrant identity and who is brown, uh, this is something that I really want to uh, focus on with the expert, uh, Sindhu Thomas. Sindhu Thomas is the founder and principal trainer of Shakti Diversity and Equity Training. She designs and facilitates professional development experiences that promote equity, inclusion, anti-racism, and intercultural competence. And Sindhu, I will uh, invite you to please introduce yourself in a more comprehensive way, you and your work, and very warm welcome to you to the podcast today. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me, Anjali. So yeah, I mean, you kind of get the crux of it. I'm a DI and anti-racism practitioner and I work, I'm industry agnostic. So I work across different industries and the goal in the work that I do is to help cultivate inclusive and equitable anti-racist and also interculturally intelligent um, workplace cultures and leaders. Um, and I've been doing that for uh, just over 17 years. And I have a dual career. You know, I'm a work, I, I have two children as well, but I'm also a, a tenured professor of communication studies um, at the College Lake County, which is about 45 minutes away from the city of Chicago where I live. And um, I specialize in intercultural communication and public speaking. So, uh, you know, professionally, it's a little bit about me. I, this is not just a professional commitment, though. I spend a lot of time volunteering, um, you know, around inclusion and anti-racism and social justice efforts. And so I helped to um, co-found an organization called Malielis for Social Justice about two years ago, uh, you know, not just, just almost two years ago, uh, with some other Malayali folks across the country. And, you know, we're really focused on disrupting injustices uh, that exist globally, uh, but specifically to Malayali folks. And also anti-racism is a big one of our platforms, uh, specifically disrupting anti-Blackness within South Asian communities. And um, about um, probably less than a year ago, I helped to co-found the South Asian Solidarity Movement Project, 
And that's actually Chicago based right now because I'm in Chicago. It's not a social justice. I mean, it's not a social media, um, you know, organization. And so our goal in this movement is to activate South Asian people uh, to, you know, give back, you know, and to give a crap about communities outside of our own and to engage in cross-racial allyship. So Chicago is one of the most diverse cities, but it's also one of the most segregated. Um, and so we're really, we have different pillars and we have, um, quarterly panels and quarterly dinners and then community building and the whole goal is social impact. So um, I started that with one of my um, co-founders, Priya Shah and Shireen Manimala. So I'm really busy with that. So I do a lot of volunteering and I'm a mom. I have two kids. Uh, Jackson is 11 and Jasper is seven. Um, and that's my most important job. And then I guess the other thing about me is I'm a daughter of Malayali immigrants. My parents came here in the early 70s. And so um, I was born and raised in uh, the suburbs of Chicago. Wonderful. And uh, thank you for sharing that, uh, that you are a daughter of immigrants. How did, do you think that has shaped your own experiences here as a second generation um, in, uh, Indian, I would think, uh, immigrant? And how has that shaped your work right now? How, do, how has that influenced your... Um, it has a lot to do with it, right? Like, I think also generation matters. So, like, you know, I am a lot older than a lot of my cousins. I'm in my 40s. And, you know, we grew up... My parents came in the 70s when there wasn't a lot of Indian community here, right? They didn't have the big divan like we have in Chicago and the churches and the community built around it and the societies. And so um, when we were growing up, it was a predominantly... I mean, it's still predominantly white, but there was a lot less Indian folks especially Malayali folks, you know, in the Chicagoland area. So, you know, we were kind of, I think, you know, immigrants of that time assimilated more, right? They didn't, they tended to not hold on to their culture as much because they wanted to thrive and succeed. And that was kind of a strategy at that time. So, you know, I was raised with, you know, uh, more white community and white influence, white American influence and Indian influence. And I also, um, because we were one of the only families of color and one of the only immigrant families, I experienced a lot of racism and xenophobia from literally like kindergarten. And it caused me to feel ashamed of, you know, my Indianness actually. And I changed my name from Sindhu to Cindy for when I was in sixth grade. And I, I actually came, moved to San Francisco as Cindy. And when I was finishing my graduate degree, I changed it back because I was studying, you know, whiteness theory and critical race theory and realizing that I was succumbing to this like world of whiteness. Um, so I think my my story of being an Indian immigrant has a lot to do with what I do today because I got into the space because of my experiences of being marginalized and others, not only in, you know, my school and my American context, but also within my Indian context and family, because when you're raised in America, but you're Indian, you're supposed to be dutiful and do all these things. And I was none of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I never really fit in in that way. And then similarly, I, I wasn't really fitting in, in, you know, my U.S. American context. I kind of grew up in the borderland. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I totally understand that as an immigrant, as a first generation immigrant, but I've come to a place which is uh, has far more diversity. And I, I migrated yeah. here in the late 90s. Mm. So um, I do understand that we are trying to sort of go in, be in between. Uh, we are yeah. always sort of seen neither yeah. completely white, nor are we black, nor, are you know, so we are yeah. sort of straddling these two different worlds. And oh. uh, I commend you for um, 
working in this space because so much of as marginalized identities also we are we are faced with uh, benefiting from so much of uh, the systems that are in place and the systems yeah. that are in place are deeply racist and deeply problematic. So that's something that uh, I want to also ask you in, in a moment. But you mentioned that you um, you are also uh, in academia. Did you face any, uh, I, I know I read a few of your articles in which you talk about yeah. being, you know, being discriminated against. So could you speak a little bit about that? And has that experience shifted in the in the last few years do you think um yeah i mean i i you know you're in the bay area so i started my career at city college of san francisco and san francisco state in like 2003 2004 and i was teaching as an adjunct and um i absolutely experienced uh ageism sexism uh racism and elitism because academia is filled with elitism um and so that unfortunately started my first semester and i would say it has you know has it gotten better um I would say it still exists. Do I experience it at the same level? No, but that's because I've learned to call it out before it could even happen. And I've learned to, and actually I do experience um, a lot of isms. It's just very complex and in, in and different, right? So I guess I'll just share when I first started um, teaching as an adjunct, you know, I was in my my mid twenties, and I, uh, you know, was put into an office with a white sixty-year-old adjunct that had never had to share an office in his all of his time at City College of San Francisco, and um, and I would, I would, I, I, it's safe to say he was a racist and very comfortable being openly racist, and he refused to uh, share his office with me. So it was like halfway into the semester, and every time I would come into my, and I had to see students, and this is like way pre-COVID where people actually came to your office hours. Um, and I would bring in like a picture frame of me and my husband or a book or something, you know, that, uh, you know, communicated that this is my space. And every time I would come back, that would all be on the middle of the floor. So everything that I would put on the desk, you would put on the floor. Um, and then he would write me really racist notes. And um, he would actually talk about me when I wasn't there. And so we were in a shared office with multiple faculty members. A lot of them are full time. Um, and so I'm this new adjunct and people would knock on my door and be like, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but you should know that this man is saying X, Y, Z and you need to talk to the dean. And and so I... I did, you know, I had a proof because he'd email me nasty things. He'd write notes and the dean was reprimanding him. But this guy didn't care. He was older than the dean. And uh, so, you know, for a semester, he just kept going. And then it got eventually so bad that the union had to get involved. And I had to the union was advocating for me. Had to, they had to mediate uh, a meeting between me and my colleague. And the only way that I was able to get the office space and the shared office was for him to sign a contract that says I agree to treat her with respect and stop writing her racist emails and I mean it was ridiculous because it was my first you know job outside of grad school and it was just this you know you already feel like you don't belong because you're young Indian woman <laughs> and then you're just really being told so that was my introduction into higher ed so I think that kind of set the tone for the next 18 years um 
I've experienced, I, I literally, I want to write a book, but that's, you know, I don't have too, too time right now because I have two careers and two kids, but one day, um, because I think there's a lot of uh, value in lessons learned, right? So I do, I started a woman of color. Um, I, I co-founded a woman of color employee resource group at my college um, just because I was realizing that I wasn't the only one having these experiences, right? And the more I talk to other women of color, the more I realize that. And that group has been a life mine for me because it's in a, a place where you can get together with black and Latino and Asian and Native American and in other South Asian women in my college to just share experiences and support each other and advocate for each other. So I think, you know, with those kind of things in place, there's less likely for overt racism and sexism yeah. to happen. However, it still does. So of course. Um, of course. And yeah. brings up so much so many memories for me, Sindhu, because as as you know, I I have also taught I've actually yeah. taught intercultural communication in uh another college here in the on the West Coast. And this was in the late nineties. And my paper got selected to be presented uh, at a conference and the dean pulled me into the conference and said, I don't know whether you should go because you're brown and this is a predominantly white conference and you may be you may be discriminated against. He thought it was going to be protecting, but I don't know. I don't know now thinking about what, what were the intentions. But uh, yeah, so I totally resonate with what you shared. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I do in my college, I do a lot of um advocacy around DEI and anti-racism. So I, you know, teach faculty, I teach like an anti-racist course for faculty members. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of training around DEI. Um, and, you know, I don't, I think the trauma and the kind of psychological trauma and the racial battle fatigue happens. And it comes a lot of times it's been from white women and particularly white men that are much older than me. Um, but in recent years, I think after the uh, murder of George Floyd, there's this kind of, you know, there's a racial reckoning, but there's also this territorialism, right? Like mm -hmm. who can talk about race and mm -hmm. who can't? And um, I've definitely experienced some, um, you know, I would say not so nice treatment from some of my people of color colleagues, right, that are talking about me behind my back saying, well, why is she doing this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been doing this forever, but now there's so many people who want to be talking about this and this has all of a sudden become an industry, right? Yeah. I was doing it before. Yeah. And so there's, there's always questions about authenticity, what are your intentions? And so I think it's more traumatic for me to experience those isms yes. um, and, you know, the toxic treatment from other people of color yeah. because I'm not expecting that, right? Yeah. So it's a know, horizontal, horizontal uh, oppression, horizontal discrimination, if you want to call it. And, yeah. and it's I think like, you know, you and I are South Asian women yeah. and we care about this work. And in America, when you talk about race, it's very black and white, yeah. right? And when you're not black and you're not white, literally like, where do you stand? So again, you're straddling these like borderlands trying to find a place for you. But I think there's a place for everyone to yeah. do anti-racist work. So, yeah. you know, I... Um, I have to share because there is somebody, I'm not going to mention her name, but she's a big social media influencer. And before the pandemic, she went all over the country doing sold out talks and auditoriums. And I went to see her with my sister-in-law and in that, and she's a black woman. Um, and I think she's, she might not be so young, but she's younger um, than me at least. And in that talk to a sold out audience, she said, if you're not black, then you need to sit down. 
if you're not black, then you need to not be talking about anti-racism or white supremacy, sit your butt down. And there is a Latino woman, and this is Chicago, right? We have a very racially diverse city. And so there is a Latino woman that spoke up and was like, wait, I've been doing this for like 25 years. Are you telling me that I need to sit down because I'm not black? (laughs) And I actually went up and waited for her because I wanted to ask her the same question because I was like livid. Like, how are you going to tell someone to not engage in work that they've been doing? And when I asked her, she kind of was like, oh, I know it's hard, but give me like a wishy-washy answer. Um, But, you know, since then, she's changed her approach because she works with white women even I see at least on social media but I think there's this this ownership right Mm -hmm. of who can speak and who cannot and I think that's really toxic Mm -hmm. and it's hurtful and it helps to strengthen white supremacy Mm, that's a good point that is a good point because at the end of the day who is who is uh who's getting advantaged here uh, you know by by weakening the voices of color of Mm -hmm. is white supremacy so yeah Yeah. I totally understand what you're saying thank you for sharing that yeah Well, I was just going to say in yoga, I mean, I follow a couple of accounts and I know that's very much like, you know, who can, who can do, who can be talking about yoga and who's westernizing yoga and how do we bring it back to our culture, right? And so there's a messy conversation. It is a messy conversation and and there are so many nuances to that. And about yoga, I I mean, I think uh, we need allies and we need all kinds of people practicing yoga for uh, for disrupting white supremacy more than anything else, I think, which is the big poison of our times um, yeah. and before, historically. So we're often, uh, just to segue into, uh, into our own experiences as immigrants and people of color who are non-Black, we are often sort of touted as the model minority. And I think that that also has sort of given rise to this thing that it's either you're Black or you're white, and then, and then the rest of them are somewhere in the middle, you know, floating in the middle. And we as people of color, um, brown people of color, immigrants have been touted as the model minority, especially Indian South Asia, and other South Asians. Um, how would we be better educated in busting this particular myth, do you think? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, the model minority myth has been used as a racial wedge, first of all, between, you know, Asian folks and black folks, because the idea was, well, Asian immigrants are successful, right? They're educated, they're high, we have the highest household median income, Um, you know, we're not... Uh, if you look statistically, we're not relying on government assistance. And so there's all these ideas. We're studious, we're family oriented, we're not causing problems. And if they can do it, then why can't black people do it? And really, that's really how it came up, right? So this is a very much, uh, you know, entrenched in white supremacy ideology and culture, uh, but we're not realizing it. And so, you know, when immigrants move here, whether you're a Chinese immigrant or a Filipino immigrant or, a you know, Indian immigrant, you come here and you learn the racial hierarchy that so clearly exists, right? And the racial hierarchy is that black people are on the bottom and white people are on the top, right? And you learn, you 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 you're, you you struggle to get here and you want to succeed. And so I think intrinsically we just kind of latch on to the white folks, right? And we become white adjacent. And then we kind of like this idea of, oh yeah, we're the model. They like us. Like let's let's be proud. I, mean, I know people, and even before I was educated about this, it was like a proud thing. Like yes, we are the model minority who doesn't want to be called the model right exactly but it's actually really hurtful Mm -hmm. to 
to us as Asian people. And first of all, Asian folks are not a monolith, right? There's so many, I think there's like 20 different countries that are constitute Asian Americans and like 40 something countries that are in Asia, right? So it's such a vast, and I think that's problematic. And if you, I know you said this is for like AAPI month, but now there's a new term and it's APIDA, American Pacific, something of DESI, API, uh, mm. because Indians, South Asians, not just, you know, Indians, but South Asians are oftentimes erased That's in right. this idea of Asianness because the white American culture or just the larger American culture looks at Asian folks as like East Asian folks, right? And so like, you know, we are such a big, big community, which I think we need to kind of silo ourselves off because when you are just blanketed as Asians, then you don't know what we need, right? right. There are so there's so much diversity and we're such a heterogeneous community. And so when we say we're all the model, that means that the the people who need those the help, right, and the support are not getting it. So like Indian, Chinese, Filipino, uh, you know, immigrants and, and communities in general are doing great, right? Financially, economically, education wise, not all, but most. But then you have, you know, Hmong community, the Burmese community, the Bangladeshi community that really needs the support, but they're not getting it, right? So when we say that everyone's a model in our community, then we're really, uh, you know, silencing and erasing those voices that need that support, the government funding, and we don't have the data to show that. So that's a big problem. Um, and then also, you know, outside of being a racial wedge and helping us to kind of be divided versus together with black Americans, another big issue is that, you know, it affects us in the workplace. So Asian Americans are the first to be hired out of college, but they're the last to be promoted into leadership because there's all these stereotypes around being, you know, subservient and docile and soft-spoken and obedient. And when we think of leader, we don't think of those characteristics, right? right. And because we are so uh, encultured into the sense of hierarchy that keeping up, you know, that power power difference. And we, we are taught that in our culture to yeah. quote unquote respect, respect, humble, and, you know, that kind of place against our own, uh, you know, yeah. leadership the leadership model yeah. successful here absolutely yeah and, and i just i just came off of a training and talked about this it's called high power distance and low power exactly. distance they're intercultural concepts right exactly. so in america in the u.s american business world we're very very low power right uh, i'm sorry we're very high power so like there's very stru structure and you know there here's your boss and you need to report to this person and there's clear lines and then low power is more shared power, right? And equalization of power. But I, I do think that like, again, we're not a monolith, right? You and me are both, are you are you Indian or Pakistani or mm -hmm. we're, we're Indian? So we're both Indian women, right? But we're very different, right? right? Because we were raised in different places. And even if we were raised in both in America, we'd be different. So there are a lot of Americans that are Asian that are much very capable of leadership roles, right? right? But those people are getting overlooked because of these ideas of what it means to be Asian. So model might already admit this something that we should stay away from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not helpful for anyone. Uh, I think it was, uh, you know, contrived by po politicians and it's been, you know, fed down our throat and we don't realize that it's actually divisive and it hurts us more than it helps us. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I also wanted to kind of highlight the, the group, the organization that you have uh, co-founded, the South Asian Solidarity Movement uh, to orient South Asians in Chicago. 
um, mm-hmm. engaged in social impact to promote cross-racial solidarity and collaboration with Black, Latinx, Asian, and Indigenous communities. Can you uh, share your vision for this organization? Yeah, you know, and I, I just had to share like a, you know, how it even came along. Like I've been doing this work for a long time and I, you know, I'm part of organizations and um, there's another woman, Priya Shah, and she is a CEO of um, a nonprofit and she's very similar. She's been doing this work, but more community based. I've been doing it more in education and we live literally walking distance from each other, but we met because of social media, because oh, of Instagram. Nice. I'm not a big fan of Instagram, but because I'm an amazing woman like yourself, on it. So she saw me talking about anti-blackness in South Asian communities, and reached out. And so we kind of for six months just kind of met on Zoom, talking about what could this look like. And we had our first event in uh, November of 2021, and it was 150 people that showed up. And you know, like it was insane to to have that many people kind of during COVID and really engage. And it was a cross racial audience um, talking about anti blackness, you know, and how to disrupt anti blackness. And so, you know, our goal in the South Asian Solidarity Movement is to really activate. South Asians to give back and to help cultivate a more anti-racist and inclusive and equitable, you know, society. But right now it's specific to the city of Chicago, because I think in order to make change and impact, you have to start local, right? You can't just go everywhere. So, you know, we're starting with our own city. Um, And we hope to go beyond Chicago once we get our groove. You know, we're still in the first year, but really how we do our work is through educational opportunities that promote self-awareness. So every quarter we have a panel discussion or a workshop. We just had one on white adjacency um, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, And then our next one will be an interactive workshop. And then we have Jeffersonian dinners. I don't know if you know what a Jeffersonian dinner is, but Thomas Jefferson used to use this approach where he would invite thought leaders to the table and get ideas and cultivate those ideas and talk with other leaders in order to get his ideas to implement. And so Jeffersonian dinners are, you know, invite only, I think it's like eight to 14 people at the most. And you have a sit down dinner, but you have a very uh, pointed discussion where you're not just shooting the shit, but you're actually talking about a specific topic, right? Mm-hmm. So our last topic was anti-racism or why aren't South Asians giving back on what are some ideas? And so by the end of, so that really helps you to really be self-reflective and talk in community at a deeper level. Um, and then the idea is that, you know, people who come to those dinners will like our initiative and want to be partners with us. And so we eventually grow our community. The other one is community engagement. And so you know, giving back and engaging with the community, communities that are in need, um, and and then social impact, which is, you know, not just volunteering and bringing your children and your families and getting out of our bubbles, but also financially giving, right? Contri- contributing in a philanthropic way because Indian and South Asian folks, we, t- we give a lot, right? But who are we giving to? We're giving to temples, churches, we're giving to our mosque, we're giving to our families and our communities back in India, which is important. But now we're also part of this landscape in America. And I think it's time for us, at least people in my generation, you know, who are born and raised in America to also see the opportunities to give back to our local communities. So that's a little bit about, you know, the South Asian Solidarity Movement. It's really exciting. We have a website that's getting redone. We also are in social media, so you can follow us. That's great. Um, 
we will put all these links uh, when we share in social media as well. And I'm a big believer of grassroots level organizations or grassroots level changes because that's really the thing that has the most impact in people's lives. And yeah. I, I talk a lot about like, you know, micro activism and then that leads to meso level and then that finally hopefully will lead impact macro level activism and social change. So um, for folks who want to be more active in this kind of work, and that's what I always get asked when I talk about, you know, social change, how do I make an impact? Right now we are in, in the world, which seems to be very overwhelming, you know, uh, climate crisis and war and pandemic and so much of, um, so, so much of need in the world, right? So much of grief and so much of collective trauma as you will, right? So people want to make a difference. And as a person who has made difference in, in your local communities, how would you how would you advise or what would you what would be your recommendations for folks who want to do something but they don't know where to start? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing is to figure out what is your why, right? You have to know why you're doing this work. It has to be something that you care about because, you know, this work is not, it's it's tiring and it's, it's long-winded. It's not just like a three-month thing, right? right? This is a lifelong commitment to social change and social justice and whatever your causes are. Um, but always know your why. Why are you doing that? Because it'll help ground you and it'll help you continue because a lot of people get burned out, right? And that's not, that's okay. Um, I've been doing this for a long time and um, I, don't, I definitely probably felt burned out, but I continued because I always remember why, right? So I think that's one thing. And then, you know, start with your local communities, right? You can't make a huge dent unless you start with your own families and your own friends and your own community, whether it's regional, ethnic, family, religious community. Um, so start small before you can try to scale bigger. And I would say this might be controversial, but, you know, Try to not only do this work on social media because social media activism only goes so far, it's right? It's performative, I, right? It can be performative rather. Well, very. I mean, we saw after the murder of George Floyd, our feeds were just filled with Black Lives Matter and right. South Asians for Black Lives. Right. And a lot of those are like pretty girls taking selfies of themselves <laughs> and Black, you know. So it's like there's a lot of this saviorism that happens and that's okay. You know, this human uh, social media was a need during COVID, but I do think that there's a lot of problematic accounts and behaviors around inclusion, anti-racism, social justice, and, you know, the profitability around it. And, you know, you, you start with a social justice person or anti-racist person that's talking about great things. And then all of a sudden they have ads and they're selling you this, and then it becomes this completely different thing. And so it's like the genuine nature of that, I think is lost. And so, you know, absolutely social media is great. You can learn a lot. You can increase awareness, but try to do some of your work outside of social media in real life, right? With real people. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think those are like three of the things. And also just look for other organizations that are doing the work, right? I mean, if you are listening to this and you're Malayali, you know, Malayalis for Social Justice is an open door. We're always looking for people who are wanting to invest in, and volunteer. And again, that's more social media related, but that connects you to real people, right? I have real relationships with the people that I work with at MSJ, right? Um, so yeah, that's a little bit those are my advice pieces that's great advice uh know the what know the why and 
be connected to real people and try not to just uh, do this in a performative way. Or, so some really, really good, uh, good advice there. Thank you so much, Sindhu. And any, you know, like you said, the Asians and Pacific Island, Islanders are a very diverse group. And there's so much to celebrate uh, in our cultures, in our traditions, our religions, our languages, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, <clears throat> in celebration and honor of this diversity, that this heterogeneity that we all have, what would be like some closing comments and um, any last uh, any last pieces of uh, hurrah for each yeah. other uh, shout outs you want to give? <laughs> I mean, I think you know, in, in honor of you know this month and you know being born and raised in this country, I think it's great that this month is actually a thing now, right? You know, five years ago, you weren't hearing a lot. The people weren't making noise about it. So I think that as a community, as Asian folks, we're empowered um, to share who we are and to let people know that we're here and we're smart and we matter and, you know, we can be successful on our own. And I think, you know, growing up, I didn't see a lot of representation of South Asian folks or just Asian folks in general. And now you see so much. And so I think that's a huge win of just looking at our representation in the media, um, in everything from Hollywood to makeup to whatever, right? We have the Lily Sings and the Mindy Kalings and Hi. the Padma and in Indian food is no longer people saying, you use my like curry. Now they're trying to eat that curry. Right? <laughs> That's right. To make that curry. So in a way, it's actually really cool because I think that uh, we've been in this country now long enough that people are stopped to looking at us as being exotic and they're looking at us for the beauty of, of who we are and our potential. So I think that's a, a big success. Uh, I do think that with that, we still have to be vigilant and vigilant and realize that, you know, we're not we're never going to be white Americans and accepted, right? We're all people of color and we have to be aware of that and work together um, to kind of disrupt these systems that work to oppress people of color, right? Racism and white supremacy. And so to be engaged in that and just because we made it doesn't mean that this is a, somebody else's problem, right? This is a, everybody's problem. So. Great. Thank you so very much, Sindhu, for uh, joining me. And I so look forward to seeing uh, the movement that, and the organizations that you have co-founded grow in from strength to strength. And that's <laughs> <laughs> my dog. Um, real life, real life. <laughs> and, uh, and I just hope that, you know, I hope you get to write a book and I hope we all get to read it. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Maybe when I'm retired or my kids are in college. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us and I wish you the very best. Thank you so much, Anjali. Thanks for joining us for the Accessible Yoga Podcast. We're so grateful to be in community with you. Please check out our website, accessibleyoga.org, to find out more about our upcoming programs, including our annual Accessible Yoga Conference. At our website, you can also learn more about how to become an Accessible Yoga Ambassador and support the work that we are doing in the world. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can also submit a question or suggest a topic or potential guest you'd like us to interview at accessibleyoga.org. See you next time.